Rowland Pop Quiz. What is the quickest, most direct link between the last movie we reviewed, Logan Lucky, and this week's episode, Mad Max Fury Road? Oh, um... This is like seven degrees of Kevin Bacon. Um, I don't know. It's one degree of of Elvis. Elvis's granddaughter is prominently featured in both of these movies. How do you not know stuff like this? Elvis's granddaughter? Oh my gosh! Well, you start with something else. I don't know. Riley Cuff is the redheaded girl. She was, she was the Logan sister, and we talked about it on the last episode how Elvis's granddaughter. She, I don't is know. Is Logan Lucky? Jacob, help me out here. Yeah, she's one of the wives. One of the. She's the wife that that takes up with. Um, uh, with Nux. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. She has a very prominent role in the film. Do, do you okay. have an internet connection? I guess I get an F. Which one is she capable or? Yes. No. Splendid yeah. Angerad. Nope, not that one. Splendid's Co. the blonde one. Yeah. She's capable. Riley capable. Q. Co. Q. She was terrific in the movie uh, in her small role, and she was really good. Mad Max Fury Road. When I was approached with this movie two years ago, I, I was not interested in watching this movie, and I don't think I was alone. If I could say in a sentence, Mad Max Fury Road is something premise-wise that's cliche, and the execution is near perfect. Where I think most things in popular culture, a lot of films have an excellent premise, and they just don't go where I want them to, and I sort of flames out. I don't know if you guys have the same experience. This is the inverse of that. What do you What do you think, Jacob? So for me, I, th- this was right in my wheelhouse. Like th- this, I was going to see this movie no matter what because The Road Warrior is one of my favorite movies. And so there wasn't anything that could go wrong with this movie for me. And when I saw it, uh, it was better than than I could have ever imagined. I was hoping for a good movie. Uh, I had been following this movie. I had been following its production, its lead up, and everything. And it didn't, it had a very tumultuous production. So I wasn't. I went in with kind of. Uh, low expectations, but expecting it to be one of those so bad it's good movies, it ended up being an incredible movie. If this movie was a child uh, from time of production, it would have been in like sixth grade by the time we saw it. It was <laughs> years and years uh, in the coming, and usually things like that, usually that's not a great end product. Uh, this is the, the exception to that, uh, definitely. Rylan, what, what did you think about this movie? Were, were you like me? For me, expectations... If they're low and it's a good movie, I, I tend to prop the movie up. If they're high, like Jacob mentioned, this was in his wheelhouse. This was not in my wheelhouse. If something is and it's just okay, then I'm always disappointed. So how did you come? Did you feel like you'd like this movie? Did you anticipate this like Jacob did? I was hoping that it would be good. I It was definitely in my wheelhouse. I really enjoyed Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I think as a kid watching that and just seeing all the ridiculousness uh, that went on in that movie. Uh, I was hoping this would be the same, but I, I had kind of the same feeling as as Jacob. I was a little bit worried that it would just be so bad that it's good, and so I went into it, you know, a little bit hesitant. But man, I loved every second of it. I I thought it was it was great, and this is one of those rare movies, maybe the only movie I really couldn't name another one off the top of my head that I enjoyed better in 3D than just regular 2D. That's an interesting point. Jacob, did you watch this movie in 3D? I did not see it in 3D. No, I saw it in regular 2D. Well, Jacob and I work for a living. 
<laughs> I, that was just the one time I saw it in the theater. It was in 3D. I mean, it was. Uh, you you got to go back and do that sometime, guys. I will watch this movie in any format it's it's in. Um, I I've yet to see the black and white edition. The yeah, I was going to say I haven't seen that either. What well, hasn't been? It's not out, right? They said they were going to put it in with the DVD years ago, but then they said they might re-release it, right? So is it is it where you can go find that? Actually, uh, yeah. So it, they re-released the Blu-ray um, maybe about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And both versions were on the Blu-ray, but I had a digital copy, and what was really cool is my digital copy got upgraded. And I logged in one day, and I have I have the black and white edition on my digital copy. I just haven't gotten around to watching it. Ryan, I did not know the, that. Didn't you buy the Blu-ray? Uh, I bought for... the Blu-ray. I didn't know that the digital edition would get me the black and white, so I'm going to go uh, do that right now. Yeah, because that was the big thing, and this just the color of this film is among many things uh, uh so celebrated about it it's just uh it's ambitious and simple at the same time so for me i love stories i love projects films and books about a journey right throughout the time of human storytelling journey the odyssey i mean just name it go down the line this one is as straightforward as it gets to i mean lord of the rings right yeah. so you just go down and this is obviously not like those films and, and books in a traditional sense, but yet it is. And so to do that, if you do that right, you can really nail it. This reminded me of a classic in that way. And it also reminded me of like a Clint Eastwood Western, as in they didn't overdo it with dialogue. And I think it's really tempting to over-explain every little thing. This, this film has to be watched multiple times to really kind of get everything just because they don't spoon feed you anything. I love that. I appreciate when films don't insult the intelligence of the, of the audience. You guys pointed out, George Miller said that he wanted the film to be understood in Japan without the use of subtitles. And uh, I think that is just a, a super interesting thing. I think they nailed that because there was a point watching this film. I thought if, if I didn't have, and the score is excellent, but if I didn't have the volume on it, I would still be fascinated and totally entranced by this film yeah this is a movie where the the title the you know quote-unquote title character doesn't say anything substantial until about 30 or 40 minutes into the movie this movie is like the action movie it really is just pure action and the dialogue is uh when it comes it's important they say what they have to say um a few throwaway lines that are that are still good but for the most part, this is just pure action, and it's it's awesome action. It reminds me of 1991's Unforgiven. The Eastwood directed and starred film that won him an, an Academy Award in the film, and an Academy Award, and they only say what they have to, like you just said, and it's more about the shot and the cinematography. There are so many. This is, we're living in a world where any big-budget movie, unless they just are over the top or trying something weird, just the CGI just the way this is just such a it's just so fun to watch this visually right <laughs> it's it's amazing to watch this movie visually I, I think just the care and the attention to detail that he put in stunts were what he says their stunts are like 90 percent practical effects so when you see a guy jumping on a pole and it's waving around in the air that, that guy's doing that they hired Cirque du Soleil actors and uh, Olympic athletes to perform as stunt doubles and extras in this film. 
Um, they went all the way. Yeah, that that sort of realism I think really pays off on film because you know a lot a lot of movies get criticized for the overuse of CGI and there is CGI in this movie, but the the amount of care with which the director George Miller took to craft such a visual spectacle that still told a compelling story uh, is amazing. And and for a guy that's operating on that level after 40, 50 years in in his career is incredible. I mean, how many 70-plus directors do you know that are operating on that kind of energy? Yeah, it's a testament to his talent. And uh, I think a lot of guys get aged out of a lot of professions, a lot of men and women and and, uh, you know, if you get the opportunity, I think some of your best work can be late in life and can be early in life. And I think, obviously, George Miller is a big-time reminder of that. It stands out. You don't have to be a cinephile to understand that the, just the direction of this film is maybe its strength, uh, among other things, like the costumes and the, and the photography and the acting. It's just terrific. But George Miller sort of stands out in this. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, the key is the action serves the story. It's not action for action's sake. It's action to propel the story forward. And I think that's the difference. I think so many action directors miss that today. They want to inundate us with these crazy set pieces, which look amazing, but are often just filler and don't necessarily drive the story forward. That explains this film and I think why it has a larger audience than, than, than the genre itself. I think that explains that extremely well. That's interesting that you say that. Um, this movie did exceptionally well in the box office. It did really well. But on opening weekend, it came in second to another movie. Either you guys want to guess what that movie was? Let's see. 2015 is when this came out, right? May 2015. Isn't that right? Let me see. Yeah. It was Let's 2015. Has yeah. it been four years? I thought it was two years ago. I'm getting old. May 2015. Man, I it was two years ago. Is it a Transformers movie? No. Oh gosh, I don't know then. I read this, but I don't remember. I'm looking it up now because I, I remember being kind of surprised too. It is Pitch Perfect Two. Oh yeah. God. two. Of course. Now listen, I know a lot of people that love the Pitch Perfect movies, and that's great. But come on, guys, this is Mad Max <laughs> Fury Road. We're reading it, and that and it worked out for them. I mean, this didn't make them tons of money but i bet it is now because people uh this has had a, a very strong life i showed my 15 year old friend luke this movie twice last week while we were supposed to be working on his algebra homework for summer school and he absolutely loved it and whenever he likes stuff it, it just kind of tells me that you know this movie is going to have a long life and uh we'll talk a little bit later about maybe the possibility of some sequels i'm surprised that we've that we've not seen one yet if it's been four years but I bet that opening weekend, they spent $200 million making and marketing this movie in real actual cost. And I bet they were terrified uh, that opening weekend. But it wound up, you know, kind of working out. Obviously, uh, it, it sort of had a, a long shelf life, and I'm sure it does great aftermarket now. Yeah, and it even, I'm sure we'll get into this later, it even had substantial award success. Oh, yeah, yeah well six. deserved. And I think that's good. I think uh, movies like this are sometimes dismissed, uh, especially within months of, of, of being made, but just the costume and the, and the score. And we'll talk about that a little bit later about, you know, um, how, how, how well this did at the Academy Awards. And I think, uh, I'm pretty proud of the Academy for kind of looking past genre, so to speak. This made me think of, um, movies I watched growing up. It was, it was a little bit nostalgic for me. Um, something that I really enjoyed it, it, 
had a lot like the villains I thought were awesome. They reminded me of old school like did, did you guys see Dune? Like the original Dune movie that they made that was I saw uh, that in the notes. No, I never saw that. The, yeah, I never seen it either. The villains in that are are just like Immortan Joe and his family like they're So you um, mentioned Dune and Jacob mentioned Road Warrior. What if you guys had to guess or if you know what what do you think are the other big influences on the folks that that uh, wrote obviously George Miller and two other folks wrote this uh, screenplay obviously based on uh, sort of a prequel right of um, the Mel Gibson 1980s Mad Max films what, what do you think of the other influences even of those movies how, how did this come about I think George Miller sort of could see the writing on the wall of where the conversation in Hollywood was going as far as representation um, and I think he wanted to write a Mad Max film with a strong female lead. He had spent 30 years with Max at the center of the franchise. He had evolved as a filmmaker, and I think that uh, before representation sort of seized the the Hollywood zeitgeist, Miller put a disabled strong female lead at the front of his movie. As far as an influence to that, I think uh, I think uh, I think he looked to Ellen Ripley from the Alien franchise. I see a lot of Ellen Ripley in Furiosa. Uh, created, I think, in Furiosa, uh, an equal to Ellen Ripley for cinema's great heroines. Now, that's well said. This is a movie that was praised immediately and before, sadly, before the awakening of, you know, we need to see some different types of folks in leading roles. And she's not the only person in this uh, film shown with a uh, disability and shown positively. So I just think it's really interesting on a lot of levels. And this was uh, two years before, I think, Hollywood was sort of pressured and demanded to do, you know, a movie and a role like that. So uh, it's impressive in that way. Like you said, it's a bit of a front runner. I think that's what held back a lot of the movies from the 80s, too, that this was kind of that kind of uh, inspired this one. Uh, Definitely Alien was ahead of its time. But a lot of those other movies just, you know, have that macho. Right. I don't think directors thought they could pull it off or I don't think studios, honestly, would Uh let them. Yeah, and I think uh, writers that just, thought. that wasn't in their heads, you know, they they were making action movies, and action movies are for guys, and guys don't want to see. They're written by men, and watched right. by men, it's male-dominated, but uh, this movie shows you that. Uh, but, of course, Charlize Theron is one of the great actors in, in the world, and so they've picked someone terrific. She's not the only one that could have done a great job, but uh, the timing and everything was right for that, because she was obviously... You know, perfect for this, I think. You know, you talked about what influenced him for this movie, and, you know, The Road Warrior in 81 kind of set the template for a lot of 80s action movies. And so, it, you know, it, it's almost like he influenced himself to make this movie, but he sort of deconstructed that macho male hero figure and supplanted it with a strong-willed, morally-focused female heroine. Absolutely. I, I think we can thank Road Warrior for the band Duran Duran as well. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. I'm a little older than you guys. Uh, there was some really <laughs> weird Duran Duran early, mid-80s videos, I think, directly because of, like you said, the 80s were fun, and outside of the rest of pop culture, it was original, but it was incestuous on itself. If something was cool, and that's all. We got a lot of really weird stuff. And so I, I think it was a, a, a pretty big pop culture phenomenon, and I think it, it sort of set, if anything did, could sort of set the groundwork for these Mad Max movies, and then 
it sort of has uh, evolved to what I think is going to be looked back on is it is already today, but I think the Staying Power it's going to be considered one of the great action movies ever. Um, I think Salon did a poll among film critics, just an early you know best of decade poll, and up to, uh, Mad Max was was number one as the top film of the last ten years. I saw that, and there are a lot of good movies in the last ten years too, and I think I totally agree with it. Wow. Jacob, do you think this is the best movie of the last decade? I think it is certainly probably the best action movie of the last 25 years. I would definitely put it as the top action movie of the last 10 years, for sure. Right, Trolls, of course. Trolls, too. Um, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, I, I would say that I, I think it has an incredibly tight story. It's focused. It's got great characters. It's got great action. It was a blockbuster. It had awards appeal. If we're talking about all of these different variables that quantify uh, a great movie, yes, the, the, it, it is up there, I would say, in the top at least five of the last ten years. If we had a huge Halloween party this year and I gave everybody a thousand bucks to do their costume, makeup, and everything, all of our friends were coming you had a thousand bucks and we were doing, everyone had to dress up like a Mad Max Fury Road character and you got a first pick. Who are you? Oh boy. Let's see. I, ooh, man. Thousand dollars, huh? Uh, I would say a Morton Joe. His, his mask, I think is iconic. As a villain goes, he's got an iconic look. I read that his mask is made out of horse teeth. Wow, yeah, which really? gives it, yeah, that distinctive sort of uh, look. And there's a great scene in the movie where um, a character dies, and Joe is is holding her, and the yeah. teeth of that mask are open, and he's wailing, and it just it looks cool. I like his breathing apparatus. His hair reminds me of a bleached white Jim James. So I, I'm just I think I'm all about a Morton Joe. They did such a good job of riding the line of just the over the top with Morton Joe and he obviously was trying to represent himself to the people as this larger than life immortal immortal Joe right and so I think they they took some liberties with him that I think if it wasn't so well executed I think could have really been hokey but I just think they always rode that line so well my favorite scene in this movie and y'all can tell me yours is where oh they just go through the thing he hands him the pistol he's gonna he's gonna bring him himself to the gates of Valhalla, and then he trips on the chain and falls over, <laughs> loses the thing, and he just looks at him and he says, mediocre, and drives off. That, to me, that was so, <laughs> so funny. So, Rylan, I love that scene. Honestly, Rylan, what, 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 what character are you? I am, I am totally the doof warrior. He is the guy that plays the guitar on the giant... Um, <laughs> Speaking of riding that line, right? The, the, oh but they pull gosh. it off. It's so great. In, that, in any other movie, that instantly takes 75% of the audience out of the movie. Right. And that's this guy. That's, that's kind of the brilliance of this movie, among other things, of just the visual stuff is how they sort of pull that off. So I love I love reading about this guy. He's an actual um, musician. Uh, his His musician name is Iota. His guitar was made out of a bedpan, uh, and I it it actually works though. Like it wasn't the the whole thing wasn't a bedpan, but the like the 
I don't even know what to call it. It looks like an electric guitar. So the the uh, base of it was made out of like a big bedpan. He got to ride on the front of like a freaking giant. I don't even know what to call it. Uh, it the literal truck. wall of sound. Wall of yeah. sound yeah. monster truck. It's so over the top. And he so was good. on bungee cords. And the film is sort of uh, at least blind, right? Maybe mute, like you. Yeah, he's got it, some mask on, and yeah. I, you know, I, nine hundred and ninety dollars would go just into the guitar, and the other ten dollars would be that weird <laughs> red, just the mask, long johns he's wearing. <laughs> the guitar. It's made out of a bedpan. It would cost you nine hundred ninety dollars to replicate. Uh, well, I mean, that's just the base. I mean, you look at the rest of it. Rylan Cox says the Doof Warrior. I love it. <laughs> It's and it's a dual head guitar, so it's got it's got a six string on the top and a bass on the bottom. I want to be one of the guys, um, the um, threat from the east, almost immediate that uh, come in on those weird doom buggies with the spikes, or the guys on the motorcycles. I want to be like an ancillary evil character somehow, or the guys on the the, the kind of double crosser and uh, for for the gas and everything, but. I don't know if I can afford a or get a dirt bike into the party, but that's where I might go with it. You could be the bullet farmer. He was a, a cool looking character. Yeah, true. There'd be a lot of options there. Um uh because just the just the costumes and the and the makeup obviously got the Academy's attention and was just obviously terrific. So I sort of think of that. I, you guys know my favorite scene in the movie. Jacob, what's your favorite scene in this movie? Um, I think my favorite scene is is the climax, uh, the climactic chase at the end. And in the midst of that, Max is fighting some of the, the polecats. And this is the shot that I think will live on as the iconic shot of the movie. But he goes from one end uh, up the other to the other side of the screen. And behind him, just everything is exploding. You see all of a Morton Joe's cars, the big tanker of a Morton Joe that the the um, that the gas sort of the guy that's in charge of all the gas Max had just killed him, and it's blowing up in the background. It's just an incredibly well choreographed shot, and I think we as the audience sort of experience Max's. Um, amazement at what's going on behind him that's something i love about this movie is that we kind of experience the movie through max's eyes he's continually amazed at what's going on so are we uh, and i think that shot um encapsulates that perfectly i enjoy speaking of max that he's obviously a tortured individual and we see so much about a, a literal ghost that's in his head and we get very little to no backstory and i actually like that it leads it to our imagination and it doesn't. Um, it doesn't take away from the story that's being pushed forward, and I just really like when they give the audience uh, the benefit of the doubt, you know. And I just really sort of appreciate that sort of thing. Uh, Ryan, what's your favorite scene in this film? I, there were so many good scenes. One that sticks out to me is uh, goes to the tanker and first meets uh, all the ladies and they are all the wives, you know, and he's got a shotgun and he thinks he's going to go and just kind of take over. You see that moment of hesitation because he, he starts to understand what's going on and it gives his character a depth that it didn't have before. Um, you think, uh, I mean, you know, he, he's just a cares only about himself and is going to go in and steal their tanker. And he kind of tries to keep up that posture, but it, it, 
dissolves pretty quickly when he understands what's going on. And uh, it makes the, all the characters more complex, you know. It fits in with his backstory, as we were just mentioning. Yeah. He obviously failed some folks, and part of him wants redemption, part of him wants to hope, and part of him knows, feels like in the world they live in, it's uh, frivolous. So uh, you sort of lead into the fact that he's in the situation that he's been in before, and he has a sense of redemption, and it's like he doesn't want to do it, but he's been forced to do it. And, and I, I like the arc of that. I like how that story evolves just immediately, right, Jacob? Yeah, I think that that's a great insight into Max's character. In a world where survival is everyone's primary instinct, Max shows compassion and uh, decides to help this group at that moment. And, you know, compassion in this world often will end you up dead. And uh, he forgoes that survival instinct of his to uh, help these people on their journey. And uh, I think when he realizes, you know, what's at stake, he, he it's like you said, Spies, he has a chance at redemption. And so he the people he's let down in the past, he, in some sense, can kind of make up for that with this new endeavor. So um, that's something I appreciate about his character. Let's talk about the themes of this film, which my favorite part is, I think, the, the wider approach of this. And I think it transcends mostly politics or uh, any other things. So sometimes you, I think a part, an audience can say, well, they're, I see what they're getting at, and I don't agree with that. I, I like about this is I think we could all mostly agree there's some universal themes here. Uh, do you guys watch The Handmaid's Tale? We haven't seen the latest season, but yeah. I have not seen it at all. Terrific. <laughs> I think there's similar themes, and you guys uh, stop me here or tell me what you think. Uh, in human existence, uh, in every culture, sadly in ours too, I, I think we do a better job of it, but we don't do a good job. The folks that are most important in our culture, in our existence, instead of, like sometimes they do in the natural world, in the animal kingdom, they get exalted because of their importance. They are enslaved. And they are um, humiliated, and they are uh, uh, degraded. So, like for instance, um, I think in this world that we're living in with Matt, with Mad Max Fury Road, uh, I think uh, having children is difficult to come by, um, and I think obviously natural resources are extremely difficult to come by. And so, instead of uh, sharing that wealth instead of the folks that can uh, grow things and provide, uh, you know, uh, that sort of existence, they are enslaved, right? The water is controlled by a man that uses it to just live in, in his own world. And there's a reference that one of the young women say when she's talking to Nux before they kick him out, uh, uh, kick him off of the truck, trying to get him to understand, who do you think destroyed this world? Mm-hmm. It's it's a guy just like Immortan Joe, and uh, so I think women have a very important role, in and they would obviously in furthering uh, society, you know, like human existence. But throughout our history, our human history, uh, up until recently, uh, and in other parts of the world to this day, and we don't treat our women particularly well in most ways, uh, even in this country. The idea is 
instead of leading, instead of the resource they provide uh, directly and, and indirectly, we use them, manipulate them, control them, enslave them. And I think that's the major theme, uh, whether it's resources. Uh, obviously, Immortan Joe has power. Why? He's not a powerful person in real life. And uh, he's, a, he's a very uh, limited, old person, but he is willing to control and enslave and uh, manipulate and lie and starve uh, folks uh, to, to live this existence he wants to live. Am I right? And so that's the major theme. And that's why that's why it reminds me of Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I think uh, th- that theme really resonates uh, in both of those, uh, in in Handmaid's Tale and in Mad Max. Um, he, uh, the, they have, a, they they live in a world where uh, men have uh, become completely, totally dominant, and just let the let their kind of uh, worst impulses take over, right? And and then they just do what they want. And this, you know, you see this in history too. You know, like you said, it maybe it's not, we don't, we're not perfect at this, right? We haven't worked it out yet, but we're better than right. uh, Mad Max and we're better than maybe, you know, like the Romans or the Assyrians or we're, something. We're better than history and we're better than the other side of the world. I like right. that. <laughs> yeah. That. And so, you know, don't take that as saying we're perfect, but, um, you know, just the fact that we can have this movie and watch it and make these kind of observations and say, hey, guys, we're not perfect. We need to uh, do a better job. Um but yeah, I mean, in the Handmaid's Tale, man, it's hard to watch that. That show is yeah, it is hard it's to difficult watch. to watch. And then you think, I, you know, women live this existence every day. Today. I get angry. Yeah, and, and that's women the, have that's lived the, this as often as they haven't throughout history. Hopefully, that's it's a, a bit of a caricature. There. But think about it; it's not even a caricature for a lot of women today uh, throughout the world. You guys know enough about the world. We know uh, enough about uh, the comforts that, that we have that just aren't shared, especially for. Um, you know, folks that, you know, women are an extremely disadvantaged group throughout history, maybe more than any, but folks that are sicker, older, or disabled, and then just anybody that can be, uh, you know, kind of taken advantage of uh, throughout time. Um, and, and it kind of reminds you, that's why I think it's hard for us to watch Handmaid's Tale, and I think this, because we know that this is a movie for us, and it has been a lot of people's reality. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think I think that's a, that's a that's a role art plays in our lives is to kind of hold up the mirror sometimes. And I think I think science fiction does that very very well. Um when we talk about um the feminism of this movie. Um you know, what is special about Furiosa that she is not uh, or I should say that she seems to have risen above a lot of the oppression that other females experience in this movie. Right. I, th- I think that's a good point because you see on the back of her neck, she's been enslaved and she was branded in much the way that they uh, branded Max. Right. So she has risen from that to being essentially um, one of Immortan Joe's right hand men. Right. That's what it that's seems what you're like. Getting yeah. at, right. That she get, she went from obviously being stolen enslaved to obviously being trusted with maybe their most valuable asset right exactly um and interestingly all, all those things that 
that we think of that make someone feminine are are not present with her, right? She's got short, stubby hair. Um, she's not. She doesn't look like the wives. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yet um, she's not masculine uh, right. in in a lot of emotional ways. She is uh, inherently female. So I right. But I as far as he that could, they, yeah. I enjoy that they um, make her both. But it's not. I think, and I think this is what this movie does so well is that. Um, so I'm going to kind of cross the streams between uh, genres here. Uh, a lot of the criticism from a lot of the fan community of like the current Star Wars movies is that the female hero is too powerful, doesn't receive enough training to be as skilled as a Jedi as she is, yada, yada, yada. I don't see those criticisms of Furiosa. It seems to me that Furiosa is widely embraced as an incredible heroine doesn't have a lot of the Mary Sue criticisms that other um, franchises have leveled at them because of their female heroes. Uh, and I think that's because, for whatever reason, like Ellen Ripley, um, George Miller, as a talented filmmaker, did such a good job of just making her a great character um, and enhancing the things about her that, that make her an incredible leader, uh, the moral compass of the movie. Um, I don't know. I, I, it just seems odd that she kind of dodges a lot of the criticism that fanboys throw at other films for their female characters. Do you think a big part of that is because this movie is devoid of the cliche sort of stuff that they just can't help put in Star Wars movies, just the hokey uh, stuff that a female lead would say as written by a 50-year-old man? I think this is devoid of that, and I think that is a big reason why it rings true. Here's the thing. Throughout this film, the parallels of Max and Furiosa as equals and parallels, uh, it, it has very little to do with gender and everything to do with just skill set and guts. And so they just don't take a time out so she can say something really dumb and masculine or he can say there's only one cheesy callback uh in this whole movie where you know every action even good action movies have this thing where they're fighting for their lives they turn around and say nice shot you know i mean it's just so bad this movie only in the end when she comes up to a morton joe uh and looks at him and says remember me i don't even think it was that cheesy that's the only time they take the bait in the whole movie so i think a big part of that is the reason why this character rings um, true to, to a lot of the, the fanboys, as you say, because I, I just don't think they, I think they write her like a hero, not like a, you know, a female hero or this or that. Do you, would you guys agree? I think it's a writing and I think it's just a strong female. Lead. I think the writing just, from an acting standpoint, it's just, I think that sort of redeems it. Yeah. There, there are some one liners in here that, uh, different characters have that aren't uh, that, that more, flesh out the character so um you know nux has a lot of these he's he's like this crazy um high on Knox kind of uh, <laughs> uh warrior for immortan joe right and and right. he just says he says the uh, propaganda that's been fed to him right i live i die i live again and then he does something crazy right or at the, his very last words are witness me and then you know, that's Which one is of the a great things that they, arc they do for him. So right. he goes from yeah. 
he goes from wanting to be witness, and of course the allegory is clear. And I, as a Christian and you know religious person, I'm not offended because I don't think it's an indictment to uh, religious folks overall. I think it's an indictment and an allegory to folks that let someone manipulate them. Obviously, Morden Joe is the leader of a cult. This is a cult, uh, I think, in the truest sense. And uh, he uses uh, this dream uh, in the, what he can convince someone that has less education and less scope than him, this group of people, just to get them to do whatever he wants. And we see that in society now and in the past. Uh, in a lot of things, we all know stories about you'll in your next life, you'll have this and have this if you do this violent, hateful thing for me that, that God wants you to do, right? And so uh, that that's an allegory. It seems it's obviously a caricature for the war boys, but uh, I think uh, that's a life that a lot of people have, have unfortunately lived. And I just love the arc that he has one good interaction with Elvis's granddaughter, and he, he feels love and he feels, uh, you know, all these many things. And that leads him to, uh, you know, hours later to actual witness for something that, as we all know, does matter to protect someone that you love and care about and do the right thing, that is a reason worth dying. And uh, so he goes from uh, this empty dream that uh, he's been sold uh, to to this really grand thing. I, I think to wield that in a movie where basically it's car crashes and fires, to be able to wield that pretty easy was pretty, pretty outstanding to me, Jacob. Yeah, I think again. Uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Nux is Nux. I think has the best arc of anybody in the movie. Um, he goes from seeking validation from the the male religious fanatic to um, the only person he wants to witness him is 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 the woman he's trying to sacrifice his love his life for. Um, he is sort of forgone the um the the need of trying to to please a Morton Joe to selflessly giving himself up for Elvis's granddaughter. Um which I think is a great arc for him. Uh I think I think it's a commentary on look, you could read a Morton Joe as as, you know, a greedy capitalist and and, you know, greedy capitalists once they're um, workers are used up or fail them. They 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 get get rid of them. Yeah, right? people are commodities. To exactly like that. And Nux yeah. Nux was a commodity for Morton Joe uh, until until Nux couldn't accomplish the task. Right. And Elvis's granddaughter loves Nux despite anything that his past. Re- defines him as i don't know if it's a love she's just loving she just shows compassion for a person and uh nux had never experienced that yeah so what i love is they don't have any sort of physical you know deep thing they don't have because that would be hokey within a matter of hours but she shows him kindness she shows him you know this sort of love and she's interested in him and she touches him he doesn't he doesn't have whatever and he instantly as a human being understands that that's worth that's what's worth dying for and that there's a there's an excellent allegory in there uh and I, and I really appreciate that this film could pull that off being what it is and and within what it was trying to do it was really uh you know I had to watch this a few times uh you watch it once and uh you know, it's good and you get it, but if you really want to talk about it, you watch it a few more times. And I liked it every time because visually 
it's just terrific. It's like a one-year-old watching a cartoon. I mean, it's just so much going on visually. It's great. But then, you know, I got to say, I was just really impressed within the genre of what it is. They were just able to to make these these solid points as they did. Yeah, I really uh, like what you said about the love story, if that's what we want to call it, between those two. Um, nothing really happens. I, you know, they, they basically become friends and that's what I love about this movie. It's not forced. If they were, right. you know, to, to have made love or something in this movie, it right. would have, have caused like the whole movie to stop. For well, it would have ruined it for us. And, 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 and I it would have been like, yeah. you know, this movie keeps going. It's an action movie and it knows it's an action movie, but it has these pieces that aren't. I don't know, aren't usually well done in action movies. And, and exactly. they just do it really well, and they make it flow with the rest of the movie. Exactly. And uh, that must have been, I don't know if there's some pushback there. They must have fought for that, because I think there's a temptation to make everything over the top. And that wasn't, and I that's what ga- it gained a wider audience with folks like me. I don't typically watch action uh, films or whatever, and that's what um, it sort of kind of, made it for me because uh, I, I feel like that I have to get something and gain something and, and think of it. Uh, you mentioned Jacob, uh, you know, films are art and uh, that's what makes this more of a piece of art. And I think it's, what's going to let it have a more, it's going to live with the classics. Uh, as strange as that sounds. Cause when you see the movie poster 50 years from now uh, and you're not born yet, you're going to think, well, but then you'll watch it and you'll get it. I really do. It's it's really interesting in that way. I think that's why I like this movie because it's sort of a lot of things at once. Let yeah, me, let me ask you. Go ahead. I was going to say I kind of judge classics by the the idea of whether or not I'm going to see them, you know, on a clip reel on the Academy Awards with The Wizard of Oz or Lawrence of Arabia or whatever. And in in 25, 30, 40 years, I definitely see this movie. Uh, being shown alongside those types of movies. You know, it's that's interesting, but I, I, I would agree with you. Most when is it referenced in Moana? I don't remember that. Oh, it's when... Okay, so it's when Maui and Moana are um, are floating on the ocean and those the Kukamora guys show up. Oh yeah, and they chase they chase uh, Moana's raft, and the Mad Max music plays in the soundtrack. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> no, I didn't think about that. Yeah, I forgot about those guys. Yeah. Okay. Uh, George Miller comes to the three of us, and he says, "Guys, you guys are gonna get in a room, uh, off and on for a month, and you guys are writing the next series in Mad Max. Uh, you're writing the next screenplay." And it's getting made. Uh, imagine that would really happen. Uh, Jacob, you first. What? Not necessarily the the story, but what what direction are you going? What character do you want to uh, sort of uh, see more of? And uh, sort of first thing, hey, we got to do this. We got to explore this. Um, I think it's got to be Furiosa. Um, I think there's a story of Furiosa taking over leadership of. Um, you know, that, that compound, whatever. Absolutely, Morton. and I love how they make that open-ended. She goes up, they release the water, the end. It, it's yeah. beautiful that they didn't take the bait to, you know, one year later and all this stuff that you'd be surprised in good movies they still do. I just love how they ended it, and it just makes me die for really want another two hours of that. That's an excellent point. What, what else? Sorry. 
Well, I was going to say, but that that right there is a very fine line because that's a that's a hallmark of a great movie where they leave you wanting more, um, or a great character they leave you wanting more of that character. So I, I would love another Furiosa movie. I would also be afraid that it might be too much of a good thing. But there might be a story where she has to, uh, you know, take on the remnants of Bullet Town. I'm sorry, the 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 Bullet Farm and uh, Gas Town, um, and maybe there's a there's a there's a conflict there. I wouldn't mind seeing the Furiosa prequel. Uh, how she got there, how she lost her arm. I think that'd be a great story to to tell. Do you think Furiosa was one of Joe's wives? You know, I don't. I don't think that she was. I, I didn't get that, but that doesn't mean that that story's not in there somewhere. Yeah. So we we talk about the hypothetical, and I would love to. Uh, I would love to write this screenplay with you guys, uh, just because I. I'm I'm sure there's some good Mad Max fan fiction out there. Actually, as weird as that sounds, but the, I'm sure as successful as this film has been, and uh, especially over time, uh, and how that's what gets made in Hollywood now is stuff we've seen before. People want things that are familiar, obviously more than ever with franchises and sequels and remakes and everything. So what, what do you guys know? What have y'all read about when we might see uh, another film and what they're going to explore right now? What I've read is it's in litigation, so they can't do anything until There's something uh, about a bonus and some issue with the studio. Yeah. It up, right. Yeah, that that George happens. Miller to, sued him or whatever, which is so dumb. Give him seven million dollars, have him make another one of these. Yeah, it happens to so many good movies. It's ridiculous. Yeah, something similar um, happened with Peter Jackson and the Hobbit movies. the The Hobbit movies didn't get made for a long time because Jackson sued New Line over money he was owed for Lord of the Rings. I think something similar is going on with George Miller. Um, I think that. Uh, what I've read is there are two potential sequels. Um, the most immediate one is is once they get the litigation figured out is Mad Max: The Wasteland, uh, and then there might be a separate Furiosa movie, um, not Mad Max Furiosa, but just Furiosa. That's what uh, I've read too. Yeah. So um, I think George Miller has another movie in the pipeline. Uh, I think he would like, he's on record as saying he'd like to go back and, and do sequels to Fury Road. Uh, so maybe that'll happen once he gets this, um, this next movie kind of out of his system. Guys, the movie he did before Mad Max Fury Road was Happy Feet, which makes you wonder if we need to do another episode entirely just to, to talk about how those uh, movies are basically a prequel and sequel to each other. <laughs> what do you think? I have to watch Happy Feet now. Yeah, is that right, Jacob? That was the film that he did immediately before. Uh, yes, that that's correct. And and so to that point, I think that makes George Miller an incredible director is his ability to, to jump genres. That's range. Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that's yeah. also the guy that did the Babe movies. Yeah, right. When you say immediately before, I mean he started this in like '97, right? So. Um, no, he's but been like, doing, it was he's been doing his full-time movies. job that he did, and when they made it, I mean, yeah, they yeah, no, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just uh, this as has far been as completed work. Yeah, this has definitely been uh, a long process and a labor of love for him. Uh, something he would, I don't think he could ever have not made eventually. Right. I, that seems like 
it was going to get made because he was going to will it to be made from what I understand. Jacob, thanks for joining us. You've, this has been great. And this movie is obviously, you first think about it, oh, it's this action movie. It has some meaning and heart and you bring that out. And, uh, it's, uh, it's great to have you on with us. Come back and pick something else this good. And, and, uh, and we, we look forward to having you back on, man. Hey, I, this has been a blast. I appreciate you having me on and indulging me with my Fury Road bloodlust. So thank you. <laughs> now we're still on board. We're going to, what my favorite television show I've mentioned on this podcast before is uh, the HBO uh, dark comedy Barry. And uh, you and I last summer watched three or four episodes on a pool day. Come back over and we'll do a podcast and we won't invite Rylan. Uh, no, we no. will, Rylan. You're always invited. And we'll just talk about Barry, which would be my dream to do like a two hour podcast to just talk about all the themes and crazy, uh, hilarious, just that, that, mo- that television show blends the serious with the absurd so very well. So, uh, yeah, we'll, that'll be our next thing. We'll look forward to that. Thanks, Jacob. Uh, Rylan. Thank you, Spies. Mediocre. <laughs> Mediocre! <laughs> so good.